0: Chapter 2, last time when we quit, kind of bouncing over here and there, getting some things lined up, but uh, I want to go back to this. Here in this context, he's telling us the same thing uh, that Isaiah 48, Jeremiah 50 and 51 and Revelation 18 and various other places talk about coming out of the land of the north. Uh, there comes a time where you have to separate physically from this world and particularly in this nation, which it looks like from all the scriptures I read, that this nation has to go down uh, before everything else can be set up as far as Satan's government to rule the whole world. The American sovereignty and military and so on is in the way of that so they're fast uh, destroying what we have here so that that is not an impediment to their plan. And I think we can look back now uh, and see why God instructed us and, and put us in knowledge of it well ahead of time to come out of there and to begin to get out into a wilderness area where A, it's less troublesome, and B, there is a separation and He can use His powers to actually protect and put a wall around us uh, during the time that we have work of His to be done. So there is instruction here, but you know, you have to understand this section of Scripture in order to know that it applies now and to whom it applies. If you don't understand these scriptures, if you haven't gone over them, if you haven't studied them, if you don't grasp what God is going to do, then what have you got? And, and how do you know what to do? Now, he's dealt with a small group of people to this point, but uh, from what I read, he's going to bring 10%, a, rem- a remnant of the entire church, And that probably will amount to quite a few thousand people. And something had to be established as a place for them to come to do the job that He has for them to do. Now to this date, we don't have the leadership all in place and we don't have the numbers of people here that I think will be coming. But we were considering back here the 70 years, and tied it together a bit with Jeremiah 25, 29, and Daniel 9, and I think this is something to consider uh, that we need to be apprised of, perhaps review it, and that is, when we got here, and how did this work? Uh, I think I kind of left the story off after I had gotten to Charlotte and had the vision of the two maps showing that the Middle East and this area, uh, the southwestern U.S., are mirror images, that one is like the other. Well, then it's just a question of what the original was. And the next dream showed that it was safe to go away from the Petra idea and go to Zion. So that, in, in my mind an estimation, means that this is the correct and the original place. And it is in the land that I now believe is Ephraim, not Manasseh. And Judah and Ephraim are connected very closely in Scripture. And you remember the study we did in the sermons not too long ago uh, in the forefather series where we went through all the Scriptures on Ephraim and how well it fit this country and all the things that God said would happen in Ephraim at the end time and how indeed uh, this is the double fruitful place it is the place where there is a union of fifty sovereign states, a company of nations or states, and on and on it went well, sometime after those dreams i don't I didn't date it and I don't remember exactly when I had uh, two more short dreams, and I think I've recounted those to you before, in fact, I know I have maybe more than once, but uh, in one, I was standing on one side of a valley a very shallow valley with just a small dip in the middle and across the way uh, there was a young lady uh, who was standing there and I beckoned motioned for her to come over where I was and she was scared she refused wouldn't come in the dream and then a few nights later as I recall Same setting, only this time the young lady was stripped naked and came running across the valley and gave me a hug. And the next scene, Marla and I were putting her in a, a bed in an old mobile home and feeding her, taking care of her in an old mobile home. So, and that was the end of that. Now, I was enjoying being with Church of the Great God and I felt that it was a good organization and a good place to be. However, the calendar issue came up and uh, we were struggling with that and John said that he saw discrepancies between the Jewish calendar and the Bible and asked us to help him make that leap of faith. That was in... Uh, at the feast in 1999. We were an African, heard it over the phone. You remember that, Paul. Uh, but then he backed off. Now, in 98, see, I was there from January of 98, I was 96 until July of 98, and I had made several trips out here to the west looking for a place somewhere in the Four Corners area where God would open a door because John Reitenbaugh had told me that uh, if we're to have a place out there, it needs to be either given to us or nearly given to us. And I kept finding real expensive places they wanted a lot of money for. (laughs) I couldn't find anything that somebody was willing to say, here, use this uh, and and virtually give it to you or almost. Uh, Anyway, there came a point where I think things may have been getting a little dicey. He sort of believed in all this, and he had come out. He did come out here in December of '96 and looked at Zion and said, "Told me after he had been here on that was Christmas Day in '96 that uh, this may be the place, but it obviously is not the time." Uh, that was his assessment of the trip. Anyway, uh, I kept coming out this way, and he even I. Uh, I looked around in Colorado as well. He made another trip out with his staff, some of it, and we had found a possible office for a headquarters out of Grand Junction, Colorado, in one of the little towns near there. And uh, he flew out and had John Reed fly out and some of his staff to look at it. And uh, some of his family was with him. And they said, well, you can't even grow anything out here. This is we We don't want to be out here. And he had promised his wife when he married her that he would never take her out of the city. Uh, and he never has to this point. So there was, there was a lot of opposition, even though that's a highly irrigated area we were looking at. You can grow almost anything there. But that was their assessment, so they backed off. Well, then one day I, I was thinking, well, why don't I move out west? and maybe I could take care of Chicago and St. Louis and Dallas and Phoenix and, you know, this western area out here, because I would come out on visits once a month to different churches anyway. And I I hadn't mind to go in and talk to him about it. So I went to his, I screwed up my courage (laughs) and walked into his office to uh, ask him if I could go to Colorado. And he said, I think he may have brought it up first. I think he did. He said, you know, I've been thinking uh, about having you go on out there to Colorado since we decided not to move the office out there now and be our representative in the area. And he said, you could take care of Chicago and St. Louis and Dallas and Phoenix and and Denver. Uh, I said, well, that's what I came in here to ask you about. (laughs) He said, well, since we both came up with the idea... He says, maybe you should do that. So in July of 98, we moved to Colorado. Well, the calendar issue became a burning issue by 99 at the feast, like I I mentioned. And uh, I had realized by then that the Hebrew calculated calendar was ungodly, that they were doing things that did not reflect what was happening in the heavens where God had put the calendar. So we had a calendar conference in December of 99. And uh he had decided to stick with the Hebrew calculated calendar, uh, so although, oh boy, i didn't want to leave. I went back to Colorado and uh walked up the mountain, prayed virtually every day, and talked to God about it, and studied it some more and by uh oh sometime in June, I think I'd made up my mind i I had to leave, and uh indeed uh when he found out that I really in, intended to keep it according to God's calendar instead of the Hebrew, uh, he basically kicked me out. it was kind of mutual, but uh, he said, don't go to any of our churches and if you have any calendar input beyond here, don't call write it down, which I've never done to date uh, but anyway, we moved to Colorado and uh, no we left we left CGG at that point, and I had no intention of starting another group. None at all. I figured there were already too many churches. (laughs) Why should I start another one? Um, And that was in July. And some of you people started calling. Uh, Some of you were in CGG and heard that I was out of CGG and wondered why and called, and others got hold of the a tape or two here or there, or somebody told you about it, or whatever, different ways you found out and began calling. So between July and Feast of Trumpets, uh, we had about 70 people that were... I, I Somebody says, "What well, are you going to start a group? I said, I don't plan to. Well, where are you going to keep the feast? I said, at Zion. Uh, well, can I come? I said, well, I suppose you can if you want to. Uh well, we, we had our first telephone broadcast on Feast of Trumpets in 2000, and there were 70 people there, or 70, 71, I think it was about 70, anyway. And uh, so we had that first Feast of Tabernacles in 2000. Well, meantime, we were still looking for a place, I and I every time I'd come this way, I would check with realtors in southwest Colorado northern Arizona and uh, Nevada and Utah to see if I could find anything. Couldn't find anything that seemed to fit what we needed. So in 2001 at the feast, I I loaded up a trailer and brought a load with me to the feast to start moving on out here. And uh, some of you from that feast decided you ought to go ahead and move on out. So, we had a little group mainly in Canab and a few in uh, St. George, and we're meeting in a rented hall in uh, Canab after we got out of uh, Clark's basement, anyway. And we're looking for land. And I was spending quite a bit of time looking at places, couldn't find anything. Everything's too expensive, far more than any of us could do. So, we went to the feast in 2002. And John Gann had seen an ad, I don't know, if it was in a pioneer shopper anyway, he picked up an ad anyway, out of a paper, and uh had found this piece of land right here uh in the paper. So he brought it to me at the feast and he said, uh, you want to look at this? I said, Well, I don't have time during the feast, but I'll I'll go out and look at it later. So not too long after the feast, I don't remember exactly when, I guess some time did elapse, uh, because I called the guy up and made an appointment and I've told you the story. He was asking, I think, something like 3000 an acre for this and uh, I had in mind that this needs to be either given to us or nearly given to us from what John had said. And I thought that that was a valid comment. If it was from God, it ought to be very, very reasonable. Uh, so, I set the thing up with him, and and I made up my mind, because I tend to be the this way anyway, to negotiate with him and try to get it down to where I wanted it. So I knew that uh, most vacant land, in my experience, whatever state I've been in, goes for around 10% interest, and they usually want even 20, 25% down on bare land, more than they want for developed land. And I wanted to get the price per acre down, so I call the guy up. I'm gonna meet him at his house. I go in. I'm all primed. I was gonna ask for six percent interest, no more than twenty thousand down, and uh, get the price of the acreage down. So I sat down. He said, first thing he said was, "Well, I decided to lower the price on the land." Well, that was my first negotiation. He dropped it three hundred an acre. Uh, just on his own, so he said, uh, and, uh, and I'd, I'd like to get five and a quarter percent interest. Well, in my mind, I was going to try to get him down to six. That's where I was going to start, you know, and try to get him to there. And he volunteered five and a quarter. And uh, then I thought, Oh boy, here it comes now. This is too easy. Uh, he's going to want a whale of a down payment, and that would have been about a three, two hundred ninety-five, well, three hundred thousand dollar. Purchase price. So I figured he would want probably 70,000 down, and uh, I cringed. And he says, "Well, he said I will need a substantial." He said this he said it this way. I'll need a substantial down payment because I want to be sure you don't keep, you don't just move on the land and then run off and leave it. You know, those, I want the deal to stay in place. So uh, substantial. Okay, here it comes. Uh, I'll keep looking. He says, how about 5000 down? I say, what? That's not even earnest money, much less a down payment on a purchase this size. I didn't say another word. I just got out the checkbook and started writing him a check. $5,000, the deal was done. That was on December 7th of 2002. That uh, it was, the deal was finalized. And then... We came out almost immediately. Some of you moved out here in camp trailers and set up a trailer trash camp down on the south end to uh, begin developing and to get out of your rent and and what you were paying on uh, space rent and trailer parks and whatnot. And that worked out good. We were able to bring electricity across the road from the street and uh, uh, and to get water. No, well, we had to haul water for a while, didn't we? We had to haul water. Uh, but it worked out fine because you were right here on the place and nobody much could find work at that time. So we got the place fenced and, and got uh, lots marked off with t posts, measured them all and everything, and began to develop it. Well, we got it the place that everything was, as we called it, surveyed. Uh, very rudimentary methods of survey as opposed to the instruments that's real surveyors have, but at any rate, uh, by the, what, about the third week of January, we had to divide it divided up, and then we had, on that Saturday night, we had a put everybody's name in a hat and started drawing them out as to which lots they wanted to try to keep it uh, even and fair. Uh, and once that was done on Saturday night, you were free to move on your lot and begin developing. Now, I find it very interesting, in the light of the 70 years here, and this is what I've been leading up to, that it was in 1933, I think in January of 1933, I've seen seen two or three different sets of incorporation papers when Worldwide did different things. It was uh, Radio Church of God at that point. But uh, I saw one document that showed that it was incorporated in January of 1933. And lo and behold, in January of 2003, we were able to move onto the land, officially. Now, is that a fulfillment of Zechariah 1 in the 70 years? Where God made it possible for us to formally, we were already moving out of Babylon, but to set up our own place so that we could make this break that we have made. And it came almost exactly 70 years later. Now is that just coincidence? These scriptures have begun to work out. Turned out it was in Cane Beds, Arizona. I'd looked all over at some pretty nice properties and some pretty ratty ones too, for that matter. But I I do remember driving by this place on the highway and saying, boy, there's a place I really would not want to live. Everything looked junky and trashy out here from the highway. Guess what? (laughs) Here we are. Now, was this happenstance? The land was, in my book... Not given to us but almost. We've been making payments on the land since at five and a quarter percent interest and it's it's very reasonable split among as many people as we have here. Seventy five bucks a, a month for a, a dwelling lot. That's pretty cheap. And then the only other costs that were associated were the development fee that we charged ourselves so that we could put in um sewage system and Roads and pumps and electric and all that stuff, which we did. So here we are. It said, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as towns without walls for the multitude of men and cattle. Well, we have one village. Now, what had that dream in Beaver Dam said? You need to prepare a place for my people, and it's near here. Now this is fairly near. It's only about, what, 70 miles, more or less, to Beaver Dam, Arizona from here. And as the crow flies, it's even closer than that. So it's not very far away, and it's closer to Zion than Beaver Dam was. And we've seen now many, many proofs. In fact, there's a whole paper that, about Zion that we did back in 96 that has circulated pretty much around. And most of you have seen it by now, I think which showed all lots and lots of scriptures about Zion and the meaning of it, and how it is a place of refuge and so on. Well, God says He'll take care of His people once they come out of Zion. I mean, out of uh, Babylon. And remember, Micah four. I think we should tie that in here briefly. Micah four, which was one of the key scriptures we used, because we didn't do just this, just on of whim, or I thought it would be a good idea to move out in the American Southwest. This came as a result of much study of Scripture, along with some dreams that had pointed to it. And, you know, the Bible does say, be careful with dreams. They need to be corroborated by Scripture. Otherwise, they're invalid. And we found many, many Scriptures to validate what those dreams said. In the last days, chapter 4 of Micah, it shall come to pass. So, this is a prophecy about the last days. It is not a prophecy about the millennium, but the last days. He said in verse 4, They shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and none shall make them afraid, for the mouth of the eternal of hosts has spoken it. Now, in years heretofore, we had applied that only to the millennium and you'd heard sermons at the feasts about the vine and the fig tree and millennial conditions and all that. Uh, but this does say in the last days and describes that. Now, are we going to see this particular concept again? When will we go back to Zechariah and see what we have? In verse 6, In that day, says eternal, will I assemble her that halts, or is crippled, and I will gather, gather her that is driven out, and her that I have afflicted. So he's going to begin to gather in the last days the people that he has afflicted, the people he has scattered, and that are spiritual cripples, and in some cases, I think, physical cripples. And I will make her that halted, or was crippled, a remnant. And her that was cast far off, a strong nation. Isaiah 1.9 says a remnant, 10%. Uh, there are several references to that. That's just one that comes to mind. And the eternal shall reign over them in Mount Zion from henceforth even forever. So it's something that's established in the last days, but it's something that never goes away. Once He establishes it, we will live in the light of His face forevermore. This is the last time that God is going to be angry with His people And cast them away and scatter them. This is the final round. From the time that he starts this gathering at the end of these days, these last days, it will never again occur to his people. And once he physically scatters physical Israel, this nation, it will be the last time they are scattered as well. So it's the last time of the scattering of physical Israel of spiritual Israel and physical Israel. Because once our church scattering is healed, we'll never be scattered again. And once our nation goes into captivity and Christ returns to set up the millennium, Israel will never be scattered again. So the prophecy again is dual and fits both the physical nation and the church. And he'll reign over them in Mount Zion, this, this Mount Zion area, the Zion part of the original promised land. And you, O tower of the flock, the stronghold of the daughter of Zion. Now, he talks about all the daughters of Zion, the churches of Zion, but he's going to work through a particular group to establish this and to set up his remnant for the people to be stirred to come to, as Haggai says, Okay? Unto you shall it come even the first dominion. So God is going to give government authority and power to build the latter temple, to set up uh, villages in the wilderness to a particular group of His people. Now, we read and understood this before we ever got out here and found this, didn't we? You'd heard the Minor Prophet series before you ever even moved, before you came west. So you'd heard this. You knew about it. Now, has it come to pass? Who did it come to pass with? Is God's hand in it? Can you see God in our lives here? It could have been anybody. But he happened to choose the ones that are here to prepare a place Now, I do firmly believe, based on the Scriptures, that a 10% remnant of the church are going to come. And they'll be here if we do our part. We'll see that a little bit later on more as well. So you'll be given first dominion, or first governmental oversight of what he is doing. The kingdom shall come to the daughter of Jerusalem. So the kingdom of God will come to spiritual Israel, and particularly to the remnant that he calls out, uh, and even governmental oversight in the meantime until Christ does come back and give the actual ultimate entire earth and universe his kingdom. But in the meantime, he says, Now why do you cry out aloud? Is there no king in you? Is your counselor perished? For pangs have taken you as a woman in travail. And the whole church was suffering in confusion and frustration. After Herbert Armstrong died, our counselor was gone. And we had some false uh, people who took over. So there was utter confusion in the church. Much of that confusion remains to this day. But soon, some are going to see some things God does, and they will be stirred to come do His work and build His temple. You watch and see. So, he says, you've got pain, like a woman in childbirth. You ladies know what that's like. Pretty painful on a physical level and the emotional level too, for that matter. Much of our pain is emotional and spiritual as opposed to just plain physical at this point, but the analogy certainly fits. And then he says, gives some instruction, when this pain comes upon us, he says, be... In pain, and labor to bring forth, O daughter of Zion. Now, there are other places that say we're supposed to bring forth the man child, Christ, in our lives. Now, he's already been born and lived and died and resurrected, so uh, that doesn't need to be done again. But we, as spiritual children, need to grow up to the stature of Christ, and he needs to be born in our lives. That's what he's talking about here. So, when this pain comes on you, be in pain and travail and try to figure everything out and give birth. And at the time that you're going through this pain, which is what the church was doing here, uh, for now, during this painful birthing process, shall you go forth out of the city and you shall dwell in the field. You shall go even to Babylon. Babylon. You don't get completely out of it, but you get out of the midst of it, as other scriptures say, and come out in a wilderness, a field, an open area, it says, uh, still within Babylon, there shall you be delivered, delivered of the birth pangs, will bring forth, and God will begin to bless again. There the Eternal shall redeem you from the hand of your enemies. Well, Christ is our Redeemer, and He is going to look over us and take care of us. It says in Zechariah 2, but we haven't gotten quite to it yet, a few verses down, where we were reading that He'll come and dwell with us. And then our enemies will gather against us that say, Let her be defiled, and let our eye look upon Zion. So, it's true. What happens is going to cause enemies to gather. But God shows us, as we read last night in Isaiah 4 and in Zechariah 2, that He will be a wall of protection around us and we don't have to worry about it. And He tells us to rise and thresh. He's going to give power to His church. Power over the nations. I I don't want to read all the rest of this, but it has to do with the two witnesses is what it has to do with. And they have power over the nations to thresh them with plagues, with lack of rain, with various means uh, that they simply don't have any answer to. So, let's go from there back to Zechariah because we fled out of the midst of Babylon and came out into a wilderness, a flat area. I meant to tell you on that uh, on that dream about the young lady standing across the valley, I kind of it was it was uh, several years before we moved out here. I think that came in maybe ninety seven. Uh, I was still in Charlotte. That that dream was, and we came out here, uh, started moving on the land. You've heard this story before, but I want to recount it here because I think it's important. Uh, we were looking into and had. Uh, Larry McElroy checking in Texas to buy a machine to compact earth and clay and make uh, adobe bricks that we could build houses out of that would be energy efficient. I still have in my file yet today uh, plans to build straw bale houses because they're very energy efficient. We thought maybe we could go that way. We were talking over different ways to go. And then some of you Uh, Found some old trailers over here a mile away from here that were really, really junk. Uh, But your wallet was about the same condition as the trailers. Uh, So uh, we began buying those. We didn't plan it. It just happened. So we had an old trailer village sprouting up here. People remodeling the things and making them livable and done a lovely job on them, for that matter, over time. But it was sometime after that, I looked around out here, and I realized that this was the valley that was in the dream. didn't think about it at the time we bought it, when I first looked at it. It just hit me all of a sudden that in the dream, the perspective was I was standing up here on this property and looking across, because the bottom of the valley is right here just at our south end, or just past it, And she was standing down here to the south on the way out toward the highway off Yellowstone. The Yellowstone wasn't there, and the houses and everything weren't there in the the dream. But the valley was the same. Same slope. Everything was the same. And here we were in old mobile homes and taking care of each other and so on uh, as people came in old mobile homes. Now is that, again, coincidence? Or is that something that has been proven in time that it indeed came from some source that was able to cause it to happen? I didn't know about this valley when I had that dream back in 97 or whatever it was. Didn't know anything about cane beds. But there it was. And here we were in old mobile homes. And I realized that what I had seen in that dream and forgotten about, frankly, suddenly was here. It had happened. Now, I see God in our lives there. I don't have any trouble seeing God having worked that out. Now, is God with us or is He not? Now, maybe He hasn't turned and shined all of His bounty of blessings on us as yet, but to get out of this world in time, to have something established out here for ourselves and for some other people to come later, I think is a true blessing from God. I would hate to be one of those sitting in one of those big cities right now, just having lost my job, about to lose my house, the wrecker in the driveway picking up my car and wondering if I had enough tent to live in. I'd hate to be in that position now. I've already got myself a steel tent now, and I'm already away from there. And the cars are paid for. and You know, the only thing that, if we can make our land payment, as we have been, we've got no problem. And not only that, a bank doesn't even hold it. Now, that's a blessing in itself. An individual holds that paper. So, whoever they turn the banks over to, be it the Chinese or the Germans or the Russians or whoever, uh, they won't be holding paper on our land. Now, that in itself is an incredible blessing. If you had bought a house and had your mortgage and had been packaged up and sold to the Chinese or someone, that's pretty shaky ground we don't have that at all. If we can keep old Harold Hinton in line, we're in good shape. They have no legal hold on us as long as we pay our taxes. All right, let's go back to Zechariah. He says, once you... Deliver yourself, but dwell with the daughter of Babylon in verse 7. You go to verse 8, For thus says the Eternal of hosts, After the glory has He sent me to the nations which spoiled you, for he that touches you touches the apple of his eye. Well, he says in many places, I think there's one in Jeremiah I just read recently, that uh, uh, if a woman could forget her sucking child, then God could forget us. That's not too likely to happen. So He's not going to forget us. Maybe He hasn't showered us with blessings yet, but I tell you, I have to count the blessings we do have because they are pretty magnificent, really. He gave us land almost for nothing. He got us out here where we don't have mortgages. There's nobody on this place that has a mortgage. How many how many uh, subdivisions or suburbs or something or the land developments, could that be said of in this country today? I mean, even the super rich, a lot of them have big mortgages on their places. Even if they got a $15 million house, they probably owe money on it. For behold, I will shake my hand upon them, and they shall be a spoil to their servants, and you shall know that the Eternal of Hosts has sent me. Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion. For lo, I come, and I will dwell in the midst of you, says the Eternal, and many people shall be joined to the Eternal in that day. So here again, when is the time frame? We're about to get into the story of the end of the 70 years, which I think God opened the way for us. Tremendous blessing to be able to move on to a land and to begin to build and prepare for His people to come at the end of 70 years. Now, we haven't started the temple yet. We don't have the remnant here yet, but I do believe that if these other scriptures have come to pass to date, as they have, then the other will also come to pass. There is a condition which we'll get to in a little bit. The Eternal shall inherit Judah his portion in the Holy Land, and shall choose Jerusalem again. Now that means that Jerusalem has been left out, or been in the not chosen category for some time. And he says, in the Holy Land. Well, there's another blessing, I think, that we have come to understand, is that this is the Promised Land, that this is the original Zion, that it does fit Scripture, and that very likely, I I would say 99% at this point, highly likely that Jerusalem is nearby as well. And then he will choose it yet again. He says it will be built in its own place in Zechariah 12. And as we saw in Jeremiah 9, 11 and Isaiah 58 and 61, as I quoted last night, uh, he says that, J- that Jerusalem would be desolate and the cities of Judah desolate for many generations. The home of jackals and lizards, dragons. And that is exactly... What has been with the site that we feel probably was the original Jerusalem. No one living there. No one goes there for any particular reason. It's just a place where coyotes and lizards live, and I've seen them both there. So it says, Be silent, O all flesh, before the Eternal, for He is raised up out of His holy habitation. He's at this point ready to go to work and get His work done. so, here we find ourselves in this circumstance, now even knowing where Jerusalem is, it appears. So, is this timely or what? Now let's go to chapter 3. We're going to see some interesting things in this chapter that maybe we haven't really focused on before. He showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the eternal and Satan standing at his right hand to resist him. And the Eternal said to Satan, the Eternal rebuked the old Satan, even the Eternal that has chosen Jerusalem, just said he was going to choose it again, up in verse 12, uh, rebuke you, is this not a brand plucked out of the fire? So this individual that's uh, involved here is one that was headed into the fire. And God plucked him out of it. Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments, that is, Symbolic of sin, God tells us to put on our white and clean garments, garments of righteousness, white linen. But here are filthy garments or a lot of sin built up. And he answered and spoke to those that stood before him saying, Take away the filthy garments from him. So that would indicate forgiveness of sin. And unto him he said, Behold, I have caused your iniquity to pass from you, and I will clothe you with change of raiment. So, through Christ, His sacrifice, sin is forgiven, and a change of raiment is provided, the the white, clean raiment. And I said, let them set a clean turban on His head. So they set a clean turban on His head and clothed Him with garments, and the angel of the eternal stood by. I guess, stood back to take a look, see how the transformation went. And the angel of the eternal protested to Joshua, saying, it warned, in other words, uh, if you will keep my charge, that is, my ordinances, my covenant, my laws, then you shall also judge my house and shall also keep my courts, and I will give you places to walk among these that stand by. Who was standing by? The angels of heaven. Uh, so, promise to uh, have a position, apparently looking after the house or taking care of it, super janitor or whatever, So, this is the way God set it up. So, everything here is contingent upon diligent obedience to God. And did not God tell us all in many places that uh, His blessing would be as a result of our obedience, our turning to Him with our whole heart, uh, Him forgiving our iniquity and washing it away as the clouds, in several different places that's mentioned in the Bible. And in fact, it's not just Joshua here, but there's another scripture that I write it down. Uh, Was that one in Isaiah 42? Uh, Possibly, I'm not sure. Where it calls all of us brands plucked out of the fire. So it's the work that God is going to do at the end time that has to be plucked out of Laodiceanism, out of the fire of tribulation, and it may be talking here about the tribulation, and that fire, as opposed to Gehenna fire, I don't know. But if the sin's not forgiven, even the fire of tribulation will lead to Gehenna fire, for those who do not repent during the fire of tribulation. Now, he tells us in Matthew 24, just before the tribulation starts, to flee from Judea and get into the mountains so that we might miss the fire of tribulations, of tribulation. And he said, pray that you be accounted worthy. So in all this, there is always a contingency from God for the individual talked about here as well as the rest of us, that we obey God and serve Him with all our hearts and that we pray for mercy and that He will account us all worthy to escape these things that are coming. So even though He may have chosen us to come out here as a preparation crew, crew for the leadership that is to come and the remnant that is to come, and I'm not saying we're any more than that, but He did commission me, I do believe, there in Beaverdam, to come do what has happened here. It was a direct commission, and it has transpired. I didn't know what to do. I didn't know exactly where he meant. And it took several years for this whole thing to develop. Well, he had said back here, go tell this young man uh, and, and hurry, because this has to be done. Well, I was only 49, 50 years old at that time. I was a young man. Well, maybe God told the angel to hurry, because he knew this was going to take some time. Now I'm an old man. But we did take on the commission of doing this and began to look for a place. And over time, it all developed, and then it happened. And people came out of the woodwork. I didn't go around and proselyte and go to the churches and try to get people to believe my sermons on minor prophets, did I? I never contacted anybody. I didn't think it would be honorable to contact those in CGG. I felt it would be stealing. It would be trying to take another man's sheep. On a spiritual basis, that's stealing. I didn't contact anyone, no one. Did I contact you, Barbara? No, sure didn't. They just started coming out of the woodwork. God stirred you in His own way to come. I didn't do it. You call me, I didn't call you. I didn't visit the congregation you were in and say, hey, we're starting a new development, everybody want to come? Flee from the wrath to come. We didn't have a message like that. That message went to Church of the Great God, at least the first part of it, through about Zechariah 6. I think it's where I stopped the time I left there and then finished it on my own apart from them. But this message in Zechariah 3, 4, 5, and 6 did go there. I didn't contact you, did I, Terry? Vicky? I don't know. Huh? (laughs) But I didn't call you, you called me. Let's get this, I want to be sure that's straight. There was only one member of CGG that I even visited after uh, that breakup. I happened to be going through Missouri to see uh, Laverne, uh, Laverne. Uh, and I had been to this lady's house before, and I was only half a block going by on the highway from her house, and I debated it as I drove up there. Should I stop in and say hi, uh, just, you know, out of friendliness, or should I go on? I said, I'm not going to proselyte her. I'm not going to try to convince her of anything we're doing or I'm doing. I said, I'll just stop in and say hi, how are you, and, you know, have a cup of coffee or whatever and uh, visit with her and ask her how she's getting along because her husband had been giving her a lot of trouble in past years so I stopped in there and I didn't say anything about what's going on here just you know small talk and world news or whatever what's happening in CGG didn't bring it up at all but I hadn't been out the door I don't imagine 30 seconds till she called John Reitenbaugh and uh, told him I'd been there trying to pull her away but that was not what it was done at all and That was the last time I did anything like that. And I heard via the grapevine that that had happened. I didn't talk to him, or I didn't call her back either. In other words, this is something, doesn't it say in Haggai, people will be stirred to come? Whatever stirred you, did. And here you are, here we are. Is that happenstance, or is God's hand in it? Anyway, let's go on down here now. I think it's very interesting here in in verse 8 and it'll take us back to the book of Revelation. It says, Hear now, O Joshua. Now God says you've got to diligently obey to whoever this is as well as all of us. Uh, And these things will happen. But he goes on in a positive note then. He says, Hear now, O Joshua, the high priest, you and your fellows that sit before you. So there's going to be... Whoever this is, is going to have people sitting before him in a teaching situation, it appears. For they are men of sign and wonder, or wonder or sign, my margin sets. So, whoever is attached to this individual, uh, at least some people, some men involved, are going to become men of signs and wonders. For behold, I will bring forth my servant, the branch. Now, you'll find the branch mentioned uh, multitudinous times in the prophecies. And it has an overall meaning about Christ, but it also has a meaning, I believe, of Zerubbabel. And if you read it in the context, some of those things seem to indicate that. Uh, It has to be the right branch, the right bow. If you want to do some research in a name sometimes, figure out what the right branch or the right bow is. I'll not go there. For behold, the stone that I have laid before Joshua. Now, he says, there are going to be signs and wonders, and it will be those things that bring forth the branch. Now, tie that together for a moment with uh, Isaiah 52. We've been there many times, but uh, I think this is important to realize so that we, we know what not only has transpired, but what is going to. Here we read this just, I think, last night or the day before, about the first part of the chapter about putting on our beautiful garments and uh, shaking ourselves loose from the society around us. So the scenario here is very similar to what we're reading in Zechariah 3, is it not? Uh, taking the filthy... Sin stained garments off and putting on garments of righteousness. Holy garments, if you will. Uh, Go down to verse 7. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of Him, uh, that's singular, that brings good tidings, good news, that publishes peace, talks about peace. Of course, in Haggai 2, it talks about the latter temple, and in that place will I bring peace, uh, that publishes salvation that says to Zion, Your God reigns. The God is sovereign. The God is in charge. And then it says, Thy watchmen, plural. So it starts with apparently one, singular, and then uh, expands to more than one. Thy watchmen shall lift up the voice. With the voice together, showing again that it's plural, shall they sing. For they shall see eye to eye, When the Eternal shall turn again, or turn back, or begin to bless Zion again. And at that point, he says, Break forth into joy, seeing together you waste places of Jerusalem again. Waste places. For the Eternal has comforted His people, He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has made bare His holy arm in the eyes of all the nations. We recognize an arm of land at the site that I believe is Jerusalem that will probably be used to help show who God is. So both the geological arm and the power of the message of God's ministry combined. And all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. That's echoed in Isaiah 44 and 45 where it talks about Osiris who will be given... Uh, the hidden treasures of darkness that God has kept hidden until time, as it says again, to show the whole world who He is. So all these things are coming together at one time. Here again, He says, "Depart you, depart you, go you out from thence, touch no unclean thing." Now He tells us in Haggai to make a difference between the clean and the unclean. That's why I yell about it so much. Be you clean that bear the vessels of the eternal. Now, isn't that what we're reading there in Joshua and those people that are with him it is to be clean and have clean garments and to uh, keep God's charge. And then there will be men of signs and wonders involved. For you shall go not out with haste nor by flight. Now, in Matthew 24, that flight, when the abomination is set up, is hurry. Don't even go back in the house. Don't do anything. Hurry. But this flight is not in haste. In other words, it's still at a time when it's relatively peaceful, apparently. For the Eternal will go before you, and the God of Israel will be your rear guard. Then it starts talking about Christ and the Passover, and then the next chapter starts talking about a great expansion of numbers of people and God's blessing coming. So I think that if you tie Joel 2 with the blessings of the former and latter rain coming in the first month, that means Passover time. And the setting of the gathering here is at the same time. Chapter 53 about Christ and the Passover. Is that this year? Or is it next year? Or when is it? I do not know that yet. Uh, This first month isn't over, so there's still hope that some of this stuff could start happening even yet this year. I wouldn't discount it. On the other hand, I'm not counting on it, if you will, because if it doesn't happen this year and we have another year to go, then that just means that God's purpose and His plan and His timing are not quite yet. Now, if it does happen this year, then we know His timing is now. But now, haven't we seen everything in these contexts so far coming to pass just as the Scripture is laid out. So why is there any reason to doubt that the rest will also be fulfilled if we diligently obey God and do our part? We are a group that has come out to prepare a place. And we have a place pretty much prepared, I think. Now, it does say villages, so there are going to be some more places prepared, but at least there is a point to gather now. There's a place to come. We go from there, and there's lots of tent room back here. Uh, we've got plenty of water, and we've already got electricity to clear to the back of this property, if that is a factor. So, um, this thing is happening, brethren. Let's not discount that. All right, let's go back to Zechariah 3 then. Uh, I'll bring forth my servant to branch. So, maybe we are a voice out here crying in the wilderness and we're going to be joined when God begins to turn things around and show His hand. And then there will be the branch, which I think equates to Zerubbabel, will wake up. I see it says, Who is blind and who is deaf but my servant? We applied that to Herbert Armstrong for a long time, that scripture in Isaiah. Uh, and I think that it was true to a degree. But I think we have another, greater fulfillment of that, of somebody who's blind and deaf to what's going on out here and what God is going to do. But when God does some things that are undeniably of God, as opposed to something that man could have just done, then the light will come on. And the ears will improve a great deal at that time. But I believe it's going to take God doing it. He said, I will bring forth my branch. If God has brought us out here as a a prep crew, uh, I didn't call you and contact you and and, uh, cajole you into coming out here. And we will not do the same thing with any leadership that God chooses to send us. He said, He will bring it forth. Now, behold, the stone that I have laid before Joshua. Now, what does that mean? What stone? Upon one stone shall be seven eyes. Now, if the object is to build the temple, who is the rock that the temple is based on. Remember what he told Peter in Matthew 16, 18. You're a little rock, I'm the big rock. Christ is the rock. Ephesians 2, verse 20. He is the chief cornerstone. Now, does this remind you of what we read in Revelation? Revelation. Keep your finger here. I'm going to go back and quickly review that. Remember, it talks about uh, chapter 1, toward the end of the chapter. The mystery of the seven stars, which you saw in my right hand, and the seven candlesticks. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. The seven candlesticks, which you saw, are the seven churches. And then he ties in more detail in chapter 5, verse 6. And I beheld, and lo, in the midst of the throne, and of the four beasts, and in the midst of the elders, stood the Lamb as it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent forth into all the earth. So, the stars, the seven spirits, the seven eyes, I think, are all talking of the angels of the seven churches. Now, he uses eyes back here in Zechariah, I think, for a very good reason. Christ is the stone. Now remember, he said that he held those seven stars in his hand. So if Christ is the chief cornerstone of the temple, and that stone is laid before this Joshua here, then the seven eyes of the seven angels, and perhaps the eyes of the seven churches, will be drawn to the rock, Christ, who is going to bring forth the branch. It won't be you or me or anybody else. It's going to be Christ that brings it forth. And He is the stone. And He controls the seven spirits, the seven angels, and their eyes which go over the earth to see what's going on in the churches and to manage and oversee them. Now, I think as we go on, we'll see even more clearly that that is what this is discussing. Now, notice as we go on. Uh, Behold, I will engrave the graving thereof, says the Eternal of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of that land in one day. So, God is going to engrave something. When you engrave it, that in, that uh, indicates preservation. Something over a long term. Now, remember what we read up there about In Micah 4, about once God turns this around, that it will be forever. It will be engraved in stone. And Christ is the stone that it is engraved in. Now, can you get more permanent than that? So what God is doing as this story develops is basing it on Christ, the rock, and engraving it there. And that is where the seven angels with the seven eyes are attached. And I'll remove the iniquity of that land in one day. That is not the only place that that's talked about. But this is talking about before the kingdom of God comes, the time when villages without walls will be built, that God will cause His people to rise and thresh and give them power over the nations, and so on. We'll see that proved here, uh, whether tonight or tomorrow. Now notice verse 10. In that day, says the Eternal of hosts, shall you call every man his neighbor under the vine and under the fig tree. Remember what Micah 4 said, in the last days, this will come to pass. And here, there's no more end-time prophecy than you can get. And it says... That we'll have the vine and fig tree scenario in the days of this work that he says is going to be accomplished here in Zechariah 3. So several very important things happen here. Once God establishes, he's going to work through a certain people to do a job. There'll be signs and wonders. Those will bring forth, and there'll be signs and wonders from God, not man. Those will cause the branch to come, as Isaiah 52 says, and then they'll sing together. Uh, that it will be based on Christ and engraved in Him for permanency. And the seven angels of the seven churches will be involved and have their eyes on it. Who does He draw the remnant from? The seven churches. I'll show you that in a little bit. And we'll have millennial-type conditions. Wall of fire about, covert from the heat. Uh, A garden of Eden, as Isaiah 51 says, Edenic conditions. He's going to begin to restore that which was taken away in the garden of Eden. Lo and behold, would it be surprising if God established those things at the base of the land of Canaan? This is Canaan Mountain, right up here to our north. It says so on the map. The petroglyphs up here on the mountain show the story of Adam and Eve who were kicked out of the Garden of Eden to the east. I believe the Garden of Eden was in Zion. Uh, Ruth uh, here has a book she showed me yesterday, and I want to get that book. And it shows some ancient navigation charts and a map of North and South America, and I believe, as I got the story at least, that those charts were from before Columbus. Old charts. And it talks about the four rivers in Genesis that came out of Eden, Havilah, and uh, Pison, and so on. Remember those? Those old charts show the names in the southwestern United States of Havila, and what others were the others there all for? But it did have Havila at least. It's very small print. You have to have a magnifying glass. I found that incredible. The ancient maps of the world, pre-Columbus. I don't. Did they date those? No. Showed the southwestern United States as having. A river that was in Eden. That is astounding. Four rivers come out of this red rock up here. There's no red sand in the Middle East. And God said he made Adam of red dirt. And lots of it around here. You've got some in your eyes and ears and nose probably. Lots of it around. It's an amazing story. It says in the Holy Land up there, didn't it say in verse 12 of chapter 2? All right, let's go to chapter 4. I'll take just a few more minutes here because I want to at least tie this together somewhat. Chapter 4 changes a little bit, but those are the things from verse 8 to 10 that we need to be looking for. The once an establishment is made through Christ, those events, verses 8 through 10, will then occur. Somewhere, somewhere, somehow, who, what, why, where, when, how, has to be answered, perhaps. But so far, the things we've been seeing have happened right here. And God has worked in our lives to at least do the preparation to get ready for these things that are going to happen in verse 8. Now, who will he provide for leadership and so on. I've looked upon us as a prep crew and I'm not claiming any office for me or for you. I'm just showing you the events that have to occur and some of the events that have occurred on a commission I think that I was given to prepare a place to get it started. And you answered that call on your own and came here to help prepare it and start it. And here it is. So, chapter 4. And the angel that talked with me came again, different message, came again, and waked me. He was asleep as a man that has wakened out of his sleep. So it's kind of a dream or a vision. Because when you have those visions, in my experience and from what Paul and others have said, you're not sure whether you're asleep or awake, but you're kind of waking up and there it is. He said to me, what do you see? Now, he's already given him this other information in chapter 3. Now, he says, what do you see? And I said, I have looked. He's seeing something in vision. And behold, a candlestick, all of gold, with a bowl upon the top of it, and his seven lamps thereon, and seven pipes to the seven lamps which are upon the top thereof. So, he sees a candlestick. Now, does this take you back to Revelation 1, where he said the seven candlesticks are the seven churches? Didn't we just read about seven eyes? All right, here we got seven candlesticks. So the things that are in Revelation 1 and Revelation 5, we see repeated right here. If you think I'm making a reach on the eyes of 5, 6 of Revelation as being the stars uh, and the eyes of the angels... I think this should put it to rest. And two olive trees by it, one on the right side of the bowl and the other on the left side. So I answered and spoke to the angel that talked with me saying, What are these? Who are, you know, I see the candlesticks. I see two olive trees. What are they? Then the angel that talked with me answered and said to me, Know you not what these be? Don't you know? I said, No, my Lord. I don't. I've never seen anything like this before, in other words. How would I know? No, I don't know. Why did you think I should? Might have been the question in his mind. I don't know. Then he answered and spoke to me, saying, This is the word of the Eternal to Zerubbabel, saying, Not by might, nor by power, but by my Spirit, says the Eternal of hosts. So the first thing he says in, in introducing Zerubbabel here is that nothing is going to be done by the power of man. It's all going to be by the strength and the power, the Spirit of God. Now, I've often said there's nothing we can do out here that would cause people to come and say, that is of God. We haven't done anything out here that other people could not have done. Maybe somebody could have found a good deal on land somewhere. Maybe someone could have started a village. Those things could be done by men. But the signs and wonders of verse 8 of chapter 3 have to be of God. And what, is, what he's saying here is that whatever Zerubbabel does has to be of God. No man can take credit. It's all to the glory of God. Who are you, O great mountain? That could be a government. It could mean a literal mountain, perhaps. It could be both. Before Zerubbabel you shall become a plain. And they say he's going to send out his men uh, to rise and thresh. That's in Isaiah 41 and in Micah 4. And that the governments of this world will have no antidote for the power that God gives to his ministry during the Great Tribulation. Uh, And he shall bring forth the headstone thereof with shoutings, crying, grace, grace to it. So he's going to establish something. uh, a headstone. I don't think that means a gravestone, but a headstone showing this is the place. And God will show his favor, his mercy, his pardon to it. Moreover, the word of the eternal came to me saying, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house, his hands also shall finish it. There is a name for the house of God given in Ezra called the house of the great God. Uh, I would not be surprised to see that name or something very similar to that attached. Because Ezra and Nehemiah are the historical uh, story of this prophecy that is being given. For who has despised the day of small things? People could laugh at the size and the scope of what God has done to date, and maybe even a little further down the road. It's not like the big churches and the religious organizations of the world by any means. It says, fear not little flock. And we certainly here, unless and until we're augmented with a bigger remnant or (laughs) a little bitty flock, I guess it's okay to be little bitty. For they shall rejoice and shall see the plummet, that is a measure of uprightness, plumb line, in the hand of Zerubbabel, with those seven, they are the eyes of the Eternal. So here again, the seven eyes are mentioned. So it was mentioned in terms of the branch being brought forth with Joshua and that group. And it's mentioned here again in the specific context about Zerubbabel. They are the eyes of the Eternal, which run to and fro through the earth. There, is it in Daniel or somewhere, I'm remembering? that uh, it says that the angel was going about seeing what was going on on the earth and reporting. Even Satan, who had been an angel, and was a fallen angel, God asked him where he'd been. He says, going to and fro across the earth and looking at what's going on there in the book of Job. So, the angels, messengers, are there to report things to God. And and of course, Satan... uh, has misused that capacity and ability. But these are the seven, not Satan. Then answered I and said to him, the question hadn't been answered yet, what are these two olive trees upon the right side of the candlestick and upon the left side thereof? And I answered again and said to him, "Uh, what be these two olive branches which through the two golden pipes empty the golden oil out of themselves? Uh, And he answered me and said, Know you not what these be? And I said, No, my Lord, I still don't know. But they're emptying out oil, which is representative of God's Spirit, His power, His mind. Then said he, These are the two anointed ones that stand by the eternal of the whole earth, fulfilling God's purposes. Now, he speaks of these two sons of oil as if they're the two. Anointed ones. Commissioned ones, if you will. There's only one other place that two anointed or commissioned ones is mentioned in the Bible. And when Zechariah was writing this and seeing this vision, the book of Revelation didn't exist. So there was no reference in any teaching or in any scripture, any writing about this. Is it any wonder he didn't know? But if you go to Revelation, it picks up the story there in chapter 11. And it's a reference here to two who will be anointed at the end to do a preaching job and a job of preparing the church and building the temple. And it even says in Revelation 11 to leave out the court of the Gentiles and measure the altar, that is the ministry, and those that worship there, those who come to services, to church, doesn't it say that we're going to have someone measure Jerusalem to see what's there, what's left, what can be used, to fulfill God's purposes. So, Revelation 1 talks about the seven candlesticks, that Christ holds them in His right hand, and that they are the seven churches. Now we find back here in Zechariah, a candlestick, the seven lamps, and the symbolism is of the seven churches. Now it says villages must be built. It says in Isaiah 41, there will be seven Trees planted in the wilderness. Trees can be men or churches. Women can be. Isaiah 4 says seven women will take hold of one man. So, Bell is to be the leader, obviously. He began the temple. It says his hands will finish it. So, we have a direct tie-in here from the book of Revelation, the very beginning of it, which is as is is much an end-time book as you could get, bringing us right back to Zechariah 1 through 6. I wanted to make that tie-in before we quit, and it's time to quit, so I'll stop right there. But I want us to see that the book of Revelation and the book of Zechariah and Haggai all fit right together like a hand in a the glove. They're talking about the same events at the same period of time before Christ comes in the millennium is set up to a work that has to be done in the end time. And it gets into preaching the gospel around the world as a witness, as Isaiah, I mean, as Matthew 24 says, before the end comes. And once that's accomplished, the end will come. Herbert Armstrong did not finish that. He died. The end did not come. A quarter century ago. So, and the gospel was not preached around the world to every creature. It never happened. But it will be in the future. But there's a lot more to the story, so we won't go there tonight, but we'll stop there. Thank you for coming.